The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning. I want to welcome all who are gathered here in the name of Jesus, those who regularly gather here, and those of you who are visiting. May the peace of Christ be upon you this morning. We've been a sermon series called You Are What You Love. It's important how you think about things, but you're not not primarily what you think. We're primarily guided by our loves, by our heart. And our practices reveal this, that I often say to students, um, if you want to know what you really believe, look at your life and look at your practices. That's what you really believe. That's what you really follow. And we've talked about different forms, different practices we have in worship. And I think the idea of Christian worship is to practice our way to recalibrate our hearts, that these practices recalibrate our hearts to desire what God desires, to love the right things, to love the right person. To love God himself. I love being with you on Sunday morning. And I love this morning that it was an a cappella service. I mean, I love it when we sing and worship with instruments, but this is is a throwback for us. I mean, if there's anything, what it means to be Church of Christ, it's singing a cappella, right? And one of the other things that we treasure in Churches of Christ, I want to talk a little bit about that this morning. That's who we are, the Springs Church of Christ. Some of you have grown up in Churches of Christ. Others of you, this will be a lesson a little bit in some of our history and who we are. And by the way, it is very important. History is very important. Where you come from is very important. You cannot deny where you come from. And while acapella in some ways has been a gift to the rest of the Christian world from not only us, but particularly us, Churches of Christ, because there's one thing you guys can do, and I was reminded of this morning, you can sing. Choir directors loved people from Churches of Christ because those people could sing. But it's not only just our a cappella tradition and practice, but one practice that's been very central to being the Church of Christ is baptism. Someone told me, I didn't ask John if I could say this, but somebody told me that John Osborne said, hey, if I didn't know we were going to have an only a cappella service and a sermon on baptism, I would have invited my parents today. We've had a good but strange relationship with baptism. In fact, many of us that have grown up in Churches of Christ probably feel both good and awkward around baptism, maybe a little bit. Because it was so emphasized in our movement as a church and talked about so much It was the pinnacle. It was everything. It was about getting people in the water. It was about 
dunking them in the water that we tended to go, we've said too much about that, so we've tended to back off and to say too little. But I want to say today that our problem is is that we haven't said enough about baptism. Our problem is is that we haven't, our problem is not that we've said too much. Back up here. Our problem is that we have, we've said too much about baptism. Our problem is we haven't said enough about it. And what I mean is this, we've talked a lot about baptism, but we haven't said a whole lot of things about it. Do you see the difference? We t- we've talked about baptism a lot in the past, but we haven't said enough about it. And there's a lot more that could be said about baptism that we just haven't said. I mean a lot more. And my contention is that we don't talk about it less, that we talk about it more. Not just in quantity of how we talk about it, but in terms of depth and quality of how we talk about it. So today I won't say everything there is to say about baptism. And you're saying, praise the Lord, thank you, Ben. But here's what I do want to say, and I don't usually do it this in sermons, but that, that way you can follow Here's the moves of this sermon. That we're baptized into death. Number one. Number two, that we're buried with him, Jesus Christ. And number three, we're raised to new life. If you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 3 and 4, Paul says this, Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for your word. Today, we ask for ears to hear. We ask for hearts to follow. And we ask for bodies that will love you. And Lord, today I ask for the gift of preaching. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. You are baptized into death. One of the things that we struggle with with baptism, I think, and not just us, but the larger Christian tradition, is this idea that baptism is a work that you do. So you struggle with this because if you've discovered the grace of God, and this is particularly for, since the Protestant Reformation, if you've discovered the grace of God, you're not saved by any work. You're only saved by grace. And this is a church, as Monica beautifully said, and probably her communion homily should have been the, the sermon moment for today. But as she said, she discovered the grace of God at the table. And I hope we do discover the grace of God at the table. 
But baptism then becomes this idea that, well, you don't do anything to earn salvation. You don't do any work. You are saved by grace. And I want to say this. Just quite simply, baptism may be the one Christian practice you don't actually do. I've never seen anybody baptize themselves. In fact, it's an act of submission. You give yourself over to the one and they lay you down in the water. And you hope they don't knock your head against the back of the baptistry or keep you down too long, right? And you get pulled up. In fact, we don't talk about it this way, but baptism is often referred to in the church historically as a sacrament. We don't use that language very much, but a sacrament is a means of grace. In other words, that God uses certain things as a means of grace in the world. Now, we don't typically think of one of the things is, is communion. That's a means of grace that the church has talked about. We don't typically think of this because this is just a memorial. It's crackers and it's juice. It's not actually, there's nothing mystical about it. We just use it to remember. And we don't usually have this kind of mystical, sacramental view of our practices, typically. Right? You take the communion, you remember. Right? We don't talk about this being necessarily somehow Jesus enters into the body I mean, into the bread or into the, the juice or the wine. But we actually do have a very sacramental view of baptism. We don't know that we do, but we actually have a sacramental view of baptism. Because we actually believe when someone is baptized, that when they go down into the water, that something actually happens in the water. Why are you baptized? Come on, you good church of Christ people. You're baptized for the what? Forgiveness of sins, so that you might receive the gift of the... And where does that happen? In the water. It's a means of grace. In other words, sacrament comes from the word... Uh, it's the Latin word that, that's translated from the word in, in Greek, mysterion. And the word mysterion simply means mystery. That a sacrament is a mystery. And we actually think about baptism this way because when, when someone is baptized, we believe their sins are forgiven and they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We don't know how it happens. We don't know why it happens. We can't explain it. We don't think there's anything magical in the water. We don't think the chlorine does it. We just, right? We believe. It's a great mystery. I don't know how someone's sins are, forgive, sins are forgiven in baptism. I don't see any evidence of the Holy Spirit, although we'd wish a, a, the clouds would open and the light would shine and the dove would come down, but I've never been to a baptism that that happened. Yet I still believe that when you were baptized, your sins were forgiven and you received the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is not a practice that you do. That God works in the water, not you. You didn't swim your way out. You didn't save yourself out of the water. It's actually not about you. 
In fact, baptism is a countercultural practice to a culture that says life is about you. I was watching football, saw a commercial. In fact, it was a beer commercial. Wouldn't be surprised watching football, there'd be a beer commercial. I thought about showing the beer commercial, and I thought, oh, how appropriate is it to show a beer commercial in church? I mean, maybe more appropriate than bringing poop to church, which I did one time. And if you're a visitor, scratch that. I'll explain that later. We shouldn't promote beer. Especially it was a Michelob Ultra commercial. We definitely shouldn't promote Michelob Ultra because if you're going to backslide, don't backslide with Michelob Ultra. <laughs> you should choose something better than that. I'm surprised I didn't get any amens. There's a... Uh, come on, Tim. Uh, I don't know. I'm just saying I've heard from Tim. <laughs> this is what I've heard. But anyway, it's this commercial where these four guys come out of work, and they walk up to their car, and it's a clunker. And they're very wise because they, the beer commercial takes something you know very well in a practice all of you, most of you do quite often. Now, they don't pull out their phones, but basically their life becomes a phone, and they look at the car and they go, hmm, and then they just do this. And the car goes from a clunker to a sports car. Immediately, the swipe. And then it shows them on the beach, having a good time with their Michelob Ultra, and there are some girls very far away down the beach, and so they kind of look at each other, and then one of the guys does this, and what does it do? The girls just appear right in front of them. And then they're at a bar or a club, and there's music playing, and there's a DJ up there doing his thing, and they don't really like the song, so all of a sudden they do this, click, and it changes the song. In fact, one of the things that you don't know that's happening to you, these things are practices. Swipe, zoom, click. They're embodied practices. You do them every day, all the time. And they are practices that lead you towards yourself. You don't like the car you drive? Swipe. You don't like what you're looking at? Swipe. You want to look closer? You don't like this? You click on that. Now, Ben, you say you may be overthinking it. I don't think I'm overthinking it. I think it's exactly why they use those images in the commercial, because those are practices we know very well, and those practices do exactly that thing. I don't like this, swipe over. I need, I need more of this, I zoom in. I don't like this song, I click to another song. And you can name anything. But these are embodied practices that are about me. They're about what I want. And baptism is a countercultural practice because baptism actually isn't about you. Jesus says, You were buried with him in baptism. 
you are baptized into his death. That in your baptism, you don't live in a world anymore that swipes to what you want and zooms to what you want and clicks to what you want. You've been baptized into his death, therefore you died. What you wanted died. That's the practice of baptism. But you're like, Ben, that was a long time ago. And I've only been baptized one time. You've missed the point of baptism. Baptism is not a one-time event. Baptism is an initiation or an invitation to live a baptized life. It is the entry point to where you say, every day you die. Remember, you live a baptized life. Every day you die. This is why the church, and Brett last week preached on the creed. We all have creeds. But the Apostles' Creed was some form of an early baptismal confession. This is what you confessed at baptism. And every Sunday, in fact, every most of the time when the church met on every day of the week in the morning, they would recite the creed to remind themselves, you live a baptized life. You died. You don't live according to your story. You live according to this confession and this story. You're initiated into a way of life. And it's living according to the rhythms of the gospel. That to live out your baptism is to live a baptized life and the rhythm of this. It's like a tune is always playing. Death, burial, resurrection. Death, burial, resurrection. That's the rhythm of your life. A baptized life. And because you died with Jesus in baptism. Paul says, therefore, we have been buried with him. In other words, we've been buried into Christ. We've been buried into his body. And what the church has always understood is that baptism is not just about it saves you, but that when you are buried in baptism, you're buried into a new community. You're buried into a new identity. In fact, the church has never really thought of baptism as an individual event. They think of baptism historically as a communal event. So it's not just the person who's being baptized that can makes the confession, but it is the church that makes the confession as well. Now, here's where this usually happens. It usually happens at infant baptism, which we don't practice. But what happens at this kind of baptism is that the parents speak something, and then they actually ask the congregation at the baptism to confess something as well. It goes something like this. Do you, the people of the Lord, promise to receive these children or this child in love, to pray for them, to help instruct them in faith, and encourage and sustain them in the fellowship of believers? Now, if some kind of confession like that, if some kind of question like that to the congregation sounds familiar, it's because it is familiar to us. 
while we don't baptize infants, what do we do, Kelly? We, we dedicate our children. Have you ever been to one of our ba- baby dedications? And we bring all these children up, and we ask the congregation, do you, the Lord's people, do you promise to receive these children in love, to pray for them, to help instruct them in faith, and encourage them and sustain them in the fellowship of believers? And the congregation says, we do. And these children are initiated into a new community, a new identity. What if we did that at our baptisms? That it's not just the one that confesses, but then we turn and say, they're being buried into Christ's body. They're being buried into this community. In fact, this is the way we die to ourselves. That you no longer live for yourself, but you are buried into a community. And that your identity and your life is shaped by this community. Augustine has been known to say this. He didn't grow up as a Christian. He wasn't baptized as an infant. But he came to Christ later on in his life. And he often referred to the church as his mother. And it's not because he didn't make any decisions or commitments. He fully made decisions and commitments in his adult life. But he didn't see the work of God as him choosing to do something. He said, the church produced this in me. Now, he did have some agency in it. He did decide, but he never talked. He didn't really talk this way. He says, the church is my mother. She produced me. She produced the faith in me. She produced the conviction in me. She produced the love in me. She produced me. The church is my mother. And he wouldn't talk about how he was, chose this. He talked about how he was produced. We live in a culture of rugged individualism. I don't have to tell you that. It says, be yourself. It says, think for yourself. It says, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Let me say this. The reality in God's world is that you don't produce yourself. If we have a famous phrase, I think, therefore I am, that my own identity comes from my own thinking and my own self, the kingdom of God says this, no. We would say, no, they are, therefore I am. Not I think, therefore I am, which does this to ourselves. But you look around and I get all my identity from you, from my fellow believers. In fact, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves and free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. Here's the, one of the major problems with American church, and here's the way we could be countercultural disciples. Usually we think of church, that the church is made up of different people, 
Like there wouldn't be a church here unless all of us individuals voluntarily came together. But the body metaphor for Paul doesn't work that way. You don't think the body gets its identity from the hand. It's not a bunch of parts that randomly make up a body. You think about the body and your hand only has life and identity and function because it's connected to the body. Because if my hand was severed from my arm, it's just laying on the ground. No purpose. No function. It's actually cut off from the community and therefore it is dead. No life. As I've reflected on my life, and I, let me say this, I realize this is a very countercultural thing to say. It's hard to get our minds wrapped around. But if you understand what Paul's saying, it's not you who make up the identity of us, although you are important. But he understands this as one body, and we understand ourselves because we're buried in this community. And I want to say from my own personal experience, as I've grown older, I realize that who I am today is because of this group. And I'm not just talking about this group today, although I do mean that. But Quell Springs Church of Christ, the Springs Church of Christ, has shaped me, has produced me more than I ever realized. You're buried with him. And because you are buried in him, Paul says we're raised to new life. We're raised to walkness, we're raised to walk in the newness of life. Christians thought of baptism, not just a death or burial ceremony. They actually thought about it as a new birth. In fact, you go back in early Christian records, Christians were baptized naked. Bet you're glad we don't do that anymore. And many Christians, they weren't laid down into a tomb as if to go backwards and like a coffin, but they were, they were lowered down into water like this into the fetal position because it was an idea of a new birth. In fact, there are some baptistries that we found in the early church that are actually shaped like a womb. So you're born again to new life. Now, our culture has been interested in new things for a long time. In fact, if you have an iPhone like mine, it's old. It's not new. In fact, one of the things that is valuable in our society is not old things, unless it's like vintage, or, but it's new things. Every commercial, every year, is the new F-150. Sorry if you like trucks. It could be anything, right? And it's, all, it's, it's funny because now they're selling the all-new 2018 F-150. And I'm like, but it's still 2017. How are they selling the 2018 if it's 2017? It's because you want the next thing now before it's even 2018. They know what you want. And the mantra of all our culture is this story of progress. And, they th- and it's the story where everything can be overcome through efficiency, through productivity, 
through speed. Greater knowledge and technology can overcome the world's problems from economics to technology to health and education and society. We can make it better. And Nike has the gospel of American culture. Just do it. Whatever it is, you just do it. We tell our kids, you can make a difference in the world. You can change the world. It's a powerful story. It's the one that drives our culture. In fact, if you listen to any politician, every politician is going to campaign on the idea of progress. Who wants to go backwards? You've got to be better than the next guy that was there before you. We've got to make things better. And let me say, it's a powerful story, and progress is good. I am providing a little bit of critique, but I also want to say this. Progress is good. In fact, my daughter is a recipient of progress. Many of you know you've prayed for my daughter. She had cancer. Had it not been for medical progress and research, she might not be here today. I'm thankful for progress. But here's one thing I think that progress may hinder us. Progress, the idea and narrative of progress says that all suffering should be overcome. And I think it's good. I think we should try to overcome suffering through medical advances and economic development and all of these things. But the one thing I think it could do to us is that it can convince us that all suffering should not be overcome and it stunts us to the reality that God is calling us not just to overcome suffering but to actually suffer with someone. You don't suffer with someone, you overcome suffering. Or you solve their problem and make their suffering end without ever engaging in their suffering. Early Christians thought about baptism, they connected it with Genesis 1. Because in the beginning, the earth was formless and void and water was there. Water is this sign of chaos And they thought about baptism and the baptism of Jesus is passing through water. And water was always typically a symbol of chaos. It was a symbol of other things, a symbol of cleansing. And you are cleansed at baptism. But there's a paradox. Because while you're cleansed at baptism, when you go down in the Jordan River, you're going to stir up the muck and the mud at the bottom. In fact, an early picture of Jesus' baptism is that he's standing And it's an icon. He's standing naked, and he's about this. You could see him in the water, and his neck and head is above water. And below, in the river, are little river gods that create chaos. And the image is is that in Jesus' baptism, he overcomes the river gods and chaos. He overcomes the chaos and suffering in the world. But Jesus never comes out of that water. He always just remains there. Because it's also a symbol that he's immersed into our chaos. This is how he overcomes. He immerses himself in the chaos of the world. And he suffers with us. This is the picture of what it means to be raised to new life. That you're raised to new life, not just to overcome the suffering in the world, but to actually suffer with.
I've got to tell you a story about my brother. I know I talk about him every once in a while. But I think his life is a powerful testimony. He was living in Uganda and lived there about a year. And probably about two or three months before he died, he wrote his last update that he sent out to everybody. And I want you to listen and hear a person that has understood what the newness of life of baptism and a baptized life looks like. Here's what he says. Uganda has problems. I'm not sure of the politically corrupt turn these days. They're a developing nation, third world country, an emerging state. So I'll just say that Uganda is definitely not one of those advanced countries in the world. I don't believe they're at the bottom of the list, but they're nowhere near the top. And this was quickly evident to me when I ventured here 10 months ago from my home in America. From the time I stepped foot into Uganda, I saw the, the effects and the causes of a country that appears to have gotten the short end of a stick in the new global economy. Misplaced populations, poor infrastructure, little education, few hospitals, corrupt government, and a culture that doesn't quite fit, fit with an ever-expanding Western ways of doing things. They no longer... Sorry, the longer I'm here, the more problems I seem to find. Like any educated Westerner, I immediately start looking for solutions to all the problems. And I quickly learn, though, that the quick solution doesn't often work. In fact, they usually cause more problems. So, I I search for sustainable answers. But all I've come up with so far is more questions. Uganda has big problems. For the past few months, I found myself engaged in a conversation with several different people from different walks of life. How do we help Uganda? I would ask. And over the past several years, the affluent parts of the world have also been engaged in that same conversation. Aid organizations, churches, nonprofits, governments, the UN, Bill Gates, even U2's Bono have been vigorously working to put an end to poverty and all the problems that go with it in places like Uganda. I'm very glad this collective group of intelligent, well-funded people are focusing on all the problems here because for the life of me, I cannot figure them out. Living in the midst of all these problems with no solution is difficult. I'm constantly faced with the immense suffering Yesterday, I had a church member plead with me for a job because he said, My family is dying, Adam. You have to help me. While this was a bit of an overdramatic plea to get an emotional response from me, it is really not that far from the truth. I don't have any work for him. He will have to just suffer through it. I have endured quite a bit of suffering myself in the last couple of months due to the problems in Uganda. While Ugandans themselves are amused at my perceived problems, my first world problems, they are very real to me. Last month, I had no electricity in my house for 26 straight days. It came back on on day 27 only to go off again for another three days. And for all of you who are romanticizing about this simplified life by thinking how great it would be to read all those books you've been meaning to, uh, to get to next to the soft glow of a lantern light, Try taking freezing cold showers for a month. That should bring you back to reality. 
During this time, while I was trying to figure out what the problem was, I uncovered that my landlord had been stealing electricity from me. This was topped off by four days of no water right after the end of my 30-day electricity fast, which is a nice break from the cold showers. I've been able to fix my relatively trite problems for the meantime. But because this place is what it is, I'm confident they'll be back. Uganda has problems, and I'm suffering because of them. In September, I visited a close I visited a village that was close by with two visitors from America who were in town for a few days. And our time in the village of Chibirwa was shaping up to be a pretty normal day in the village. We took a tour of the garden. We greeted some of our neighbors. We shared a meal. After we ate, our host, Amanda Wilson, told us that one of the elder uh, church members had recently lost his youngest daughter and people were gathering for burial. We agreed to go over and give our condolences to the family and to view the body. Just as in America, it is customary to view the body of the deceased as part of a ritual of saying goodbye. In Uganda, they don't have funeral homes that are able to present the body in a manner that reflects a living person. The 33-year-old woman that we saw, she looked dead. It was a disturbing sight. Her older sister was holding back the sheet that covered her lifeless body. I asked her, how did your sister die? The older sister stared at me for a moment and then shook her head with, this, with a disgusted, frustrated look on her face. She said, don't you know? And an exhausted gasp. I thought I'd messed up. I didn't think that question was inappropriate, but this lady was obviously disturbed. And then she said this, she died of AIDS. Like everyone else around here, she died of AIDS. Her voice cracked, and she started to tear up. I softly said, in Gachitalo, which is Lusoga, the Lusoga word of lament that is solely used in the midst of death, it literally translates, oh no. And I had nothing else to say. Uganda has problems, and its people are suffering to the point of death. Adam says, my illusion of solving the problems of this country has long left me, just in 10 months. They have been replaced with a hope of a risen Savior who understands what it means to suffer in the world. This world refuses to work on God's terms and thus will always be filled with suffering. And because I live in this world, I'm privy to that suffering, whether I'm living in America or Uganda. Well, I never stop trying to eliminate the suffering in the world, the suffering in Uganda, and the suffering in, in losing a younger sister to AIDS, or even the suffering in my own life, I do not believe that is all I should be doing. Solutions are wonderful, cures are great, Answers are awesome, but in this broken world, I'm beginning to believe we need more people who are willing to enter into the suffering of others, whether they can help or not. Then he says this, I want to choose to suffer for the sake of others. I'm not always sure how to do that or what it looks like, but most days I wake up, I can't think of anything else to do. 
Uganda has problems. And I pray that God will solve them. But until he does, I will also pray for the strength to suffer. That's a picture of someone who's come to understand what it means to be raised to new life. To be baptized into the world of chaos and to suffer people. That baptism is not about you. It's about you dying and being buried in a community and then being raised with a new mission and a new purpose and that's to go and suffer with others. It's a very different practice than swipe, zoom, It's actually a kind of life that has changed the world, a baptized life. The life of Jesus is death, burial, and resurrection. So if you're tired of living for yourself, if you're tired of living alone and want to be immersed into a community, and if you want real mission and purpose in life, and it's not an easy mission, but a mission of suffering, with others. We want to invite you. Come. Be baptized today. As we stand and sing.